We're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13 together. God's word says this. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered. But right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of God for the people of God. You can be seated. As you're finding your seat, let me pause just to welcome you uh, to City Life this morning. Um, And especially to those of you who are guests with us this morning. Maybe you're visiting for the first time. Maybe you've been with us once or twice before. Man, we're just glad you're here with us this morning. We hope you feel uh, welcome in the house Um, At City Life, our our vision is to demonstrate and declare the goodness of Jesus from the heart of Wichita to the world. And um, and we want you to know the goodness of Jesus. We'd also love to just connect with you. And so um, if you would find a connect card in the seat in front of you or maybe find the QR code on your armrest and use your phone to to go to a digital form of the connect card, we'd love to just um, know that you're with us this morning and answer any questions you may have. There's some boxes you can check. We'd love to just follow up with you um, and tell you more about our church. Uh, Regular attenders and and members, this is an opportunity in our service uh, before we dive into God's word for you um, to worship through giving. 
And so you know what to do. There's a screen behind me with several ways that you can, you can give. Um, but let's be faithful to give to the Lord so that we can make Jesus known here in our city. Um, this morning, we are uh, starting a new series. Uh, we're we're going to be spending the next several weeks looking at the life of David. Um, David is described in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. He's one of the most important figures in the Bible and especially in the Old Testament. It's, it's from his lineage that Jesus descended. David is this incredible man. And yet David is also this man that we know failed significantly. David sinned egregiously against the Lord. I think his life has much to teach us. So if you're wondering why, why a series on the life of David, I just think, I think we're going to find ourselves here in these pages over and over again as we look at the life of David. And so for the next 11 weeks or so, we're going to spend time studying portions of First and Second Samuel, exploring David's life. And it's going to lead us into all kinds of topics, faithfulness, fear, justice, friendship, worship, kindness and mercy, confrontation, adultery, repentance. And in all of these things, we're going to discover a flawed man, but a man who nonetheless had faith in God. And ultimately what we're going to see week after week as we look at the life of David is that the hero in David's story is not David. It's Jesus. And so to set the stage for our series this morning, what I want to do is I want us to quickly go back and and to set us in context so that we understand what's going on as we get to the passage we just read this morning in 1 Samuel 16. So, so let's quickly go back and gain some context, and then we'll dive into what's going on in our text this morning. For, for Advent this year, we were in the story of Ruth, which is set in the period of the Judges. This was not a great time in Israel's history. The book of Judges ends with this statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel, And everyone did whatever seemed right to him. The time before the monarchy was not a good time. The people of God really struggled to follow Yahweh. Without strong leadership in place, what's referred to as a judge, which was somewhat of a combination between a military and a spiritual leader. Without a judge in place, the people floundered. They just wandered from God. And so God would raise up a judge, and during the judge's life, the people would kind of follow, and then as soon as the judge passed away, the people would walk away from God again. And then God would allow them to be taken captive or or get into a mess until they cried out to him, and he would say, hello, and he'd raise up another judge, and we see the cycle over and over and over again. The people needed a king. They needed someone to lead them. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God had given Israel instructions for selecting a king. So we we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 17. God tells the people, "When when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you take possession of it, and you live in it, and say, 
I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You're to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. God says, I want you to appoint the king that I choose for you. Appoint a king from your brothers. You're not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord your God has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he's to take a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction. And to do all these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from this command to the right or the left. And he and his sons will continue reigning many years in Israel. So this is, this is God to second generation Israelites in the plains of Moab. Before they're even in Canaan. Giving them instructions for the kind of king that they're to put over them once they get into the promised land. And what God is telling them is, you don't want a king like all the pagan nations. That's not the kind of king that you need. You want a humble king. You want a king that's not going to amass a bunch of wealth for himself and a bunch of wives for himself that are going to tempt his heart and lead him astray. You want a king that is devoted to Torah, that's devoted to the law of God that meditates on it day and night. You want a king that fears me. That's what God is telling the people. In other words, the, the king of Israel wasn't supposed to lord his position over them. He was to see himself more like a prince than a king. He was Yahweh's servant. He was an under shepherd of the true shepherd. He was put in a position to lead the people in righteousness and faithfulness. But what happens is when the people of God finally decide that they need a king for themselves, that's not at all what they're looking for. 1 Samuel chapter 8, five, verse 5 tells us that the elders of Israel came to Samuel, who was basically functioning like a judge over them at this point, and they said to him, look, you're old. Your sons aren't like you. We want a king to judge us. But listen what it says. Appoint a king to judge us, same as all the other nations have. Sammy says, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what you want, guys. No, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us. He'll go out before us. He'll fight our battles. They wanted a king who was intimidating. Someone big and strong. A military leader who is impressive and daunting. A king like the nations. Now the problem, of course, was that God had called Israel to be different than the nations. Fundamentally, what God had told Israel was, you're to be distinct. Be holy as I am holy. Conformity was corruption. 
It, it was a collapse of their calling. And up to this point, had not God fought their battles for them? Had not God shown himself faithful every single time they put their trust in him? And so their desire for a king like the nations was actually a rejection of Yahweh. And here's the scary part. In response, God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. Listen, one of the scariest places we can find ourselves in is living in the aftermath of God giving us what we think we want. Sometimes, to bring us to the end of ourselves, to expose the folly of our own wisdom, God gives us what we ask for. He hands us over to our own devices. That's what happens here. 1 Samuel 8, 22. Listen to them, Samuel. Appoint a king for them. And so they end up with this man named Saul. Listen to how Saul is described. An impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. Saul was exactly what the people were looking for. But as the story goes on, he proves not to be the king who fears the Lord. It's interesting, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, eight different times the verbal root samah is used. It's the central theme of the chapter. And the central point is this. Saul failed to listen. That, that root word sama means to hear or listen or obey. The writer's being explicit. Saul failed to listen to Yahweh. He didn't hear what Yahweh said, which was his primary calling as king. Dale Ralph Davis explains that Saul's failure to carry out Yahweh's orders signals something deeper than failure. Not listening to Yahweh's voice is not merely misunderstanding, but rebellion and arrogance. To reject Yahweh's word is to reject Yahweh himself. That's a word for our culture. Since Saul had rejected Yahweh as king over him, Yahweh rejected Saul as king over the people. God says, Saul, you're a disqualified king. Now let's be clear here. Let's remember that we're not dealing in the realm of forgiveness, but in the realm of fitness as king. God's word of rejection does not mean that Saul was beyond personal recovery. But it does mean that God was removing his anointing as king. And so the potential of forgiveness was still available if Saul would in fact truly repent. This was a clear opportunity for Saul to face the music. And so we need to be able to parse here between forgiveness of sin and consequence of sin. We get this confused sometimes. You can be forgiven and still be forced to face the consequences of your sin. And for Saul, that meant he was removing 
his anointing. God says, Saul is not my king. And so this sets the stage now for 1 Samuel 16 where we kind of dive into the life of David. And verse 1 tells us that the Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him king over Israel? Fill your, horn in, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his son. Samuel at this point is still distraught over the situation with Saul. And in essence, what God's saying to Samuel is, hey, snap out of it. Head to Bethlehem. I've already identified the next leader for God's people. And this time, instead of giving the people the leader they want, God says, I'm going to give them my choice. I'm going to give them my king. And what we discover in this chapter about God's choice is that God's choice is quite different from the world's. I believe God's choice of a king for, for Israel illustrates the kind of person that he still chooses to use today. And so that's where I want to focus our attention this morning. What is the kind of person God is still choosing to use today? And what we'll find is that God, God uses ordinary people of faith who live with everyday faithfulness. God uses ordinary people of faith who live with everyday faithfulness. So let's look at this in two sections. Ordinary people of faith. When, when Samuel gets to Bethlehem, he invites the family of Jesse to this special sacrifice. The reason why the people are tripping is because last time Samuel showed up, King Agag got killed and King Saul got removed. And the people are like, Samuel, what's your business? They're scared. Sam is like, I come in peace. He invites Jesse and his family to come. And, and as soon as Samuel sees Eliab, he says to himself, this has got to be the guy. Why? Because Eliab was anything but ordinary. This dude was physically impressive. He dominated the room as soon as he walked in. He is the ancient Hebrew version of Dwayne Johnson, right? I mean, this is Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, right? This, let me put it in Craig Daniel language. He's a five-star blue chip recruit, Craig. And Samuel thinks to himself, here we go. The irony is that Samuel falls prey to the same line of thinking as the people of Israel. It's the same line of thinking in our day. My alma mater, Mississippi State, has been searching for a new director of athletics. And yesterday they announced that a man by the name of Zach Selman is their new AD. I want you to listen to how Mississippi State President Mark Keenum describes Selman. Re regarding their pursuit of Selman, he said this. He said, the reaction I got quite frequently, quite frequently was this. Wow, you're talking to Zach Selman. Wow, wow. And then they would go on with their superlatives about what a wonderful person he is and how fortunate you would be if, if he would choose to come to Mississippi State. Not only does Zach Selman have the it factor, he has the wow factor. That's what we tend to look for, isn't it? 
We're looking for the it factor and the wow factor. And we think that that's what God is looking for from us. Do you have the it factor for God? Are you bringing the wow factor for his kingdom? We say this in all kinds of different ways, but that's how we tend to see the world and to think that God sees us and that's what he wants from us. Can I just say that's a heavy weight to live under? It is a word of grace to us that God says regarding Eliab, he's not the one. Receive that as a word of grace this morning. That despite his appearance and despite his dynamic personality and despite his leadership capabilities and despite his charisma and charm, God goes, he's not the one. There's a caution flag that, that rises up in this entire chapter telling us beware of the allure of external appearances. It's not outward impressiveness that determines your usefulness to God. That's good news. God isn't concerned what you have to offer him. God doesn't need you. But he'll use those who have a real relationship with him. Do you know him intimately and personally? Are you walking with God? Because what verse 7 says is he's looking at the heart. One by one, Jesse's seven sons walk before Samuel. And after each one, God says, no, not the one. Not the one. Not the one. And as the last son stands before Samuel, I'm sure that Samuel's heart is starting to beat a little bit faster. I'm sure that he's a little confused at this point, a little embarrassed. I mean, God had sent him to Bethlehem, right? He had called him to go to the family of Jesse. He'd made it clear he's going to choose a king from this family. And after son number seven walks past and God says, no, I'm sure that there was this pregnant pause where Samuel's going, uh, now what? And finally, Samuel says to Jesse, hey, these all the sons you have? And as it turned out, there was another, a youngest son, a pubescent son, a teenage son that Jesse never imagined in a million years God would choose. The, the term in our, in our text, the youngest, is the Hebrew word hakaton. And, and it carries this undertone of like complete insignificance. One commentator translated it, the runt. The runt was out with the sheep doing the least technical role on the farm where he can't mess things up too much. This adolescent is so unimpressive that his father didn't even invite him to the ceremony. Even when it says in verse 12 that he had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance, this isn't a statement about David's kingliness. It's like saying that he was boyish and cute. In every possible way, the story is signaling to us that David is an unlikely choice. He's hakaton. He's the runt. He's the busboy sheep tender. He's a teenage Justin Bieber lookalike. This is not the stuff of royal rule. 
Notice, notice that the narrator doesn't even give us his name until verse 13. This isn't by accident. It's signaling to us and illustrating for us how unremarkable David was to everyone. That is to everyone except Yahweh. When David finally arrives, the Lord says, he's the one. God saw through his boyishness into the heart of one who loved him. Not perfectly, we're going to see that in the rest of the series, but genuinely. David, as as ordinary as he was, had a real relationship with Yahweh, and that was all that God was looking for. Eugene Peterson says, The choice of David is surely intended to convey a sense of inclusion to all ordinary men and women, the plain folk, the undistinguished in the eyes of their neighbors, those lacking social status and peer recognition. David's the antihero. 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul reminds the church that God has chosen what is what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. God's saying, man, I'm, 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 I'm turning the paradigm upside down for you. God likes using unlikely people. And here's what this means. It means that entrance into kingdom service is not predicated upon proven potential or popular vote, but simply upon God's kindness, that he has the grace to include the unlikely simply by faith in him. God uses ordinary people of faith. That's really good news. At least it is for me. The only, the only people that's bad news for are those who think that they're more important than they really are. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you have a relationship with Jesus, God will use you. It's been said before that he doesn't call the qualified, that he qualifies the called. And that's what we notice here in our passage, verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. What what equipped David for service was God's spirit. It was God's anointing. And, And that's why anybody can be used by God. Because it's not about you. It's about God's spirit in you. Pastor Ray Ortland, he's, he's, I don't know him personally, but he's one of my mentors, Van. I mean, he's one of those guys that I'm mentored by from a distance. And when he was pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee, he would often recite what he called the Emmanuel mantra. The Emmanuel mantra goes like this. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. And anybody can get in on this. Don't you love that? I'm an idiot. I'm no good. I got nothing. But my future's super bright. And anybody can get in on this. Since God gives you what you need, anybody can get in on this. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers you to be used by God. It's the Spirit who will do powerful things through you. 
Here's what's amazing. Under the old covenant, the covenant that we're in as we look at this passage this morning, under the old covenant, God's anointing, his spirit, was bestowed primarily on these major figures in Israel, kings and prophets. One of the hallmark differences between the old covenant and the new covenant is that under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit comes to anoint every single believer. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell the heart of every Christian so that 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person. Ephesians 1, 13 tells us that when we believe in Jesus, that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Apostle Peter exhorts the church that as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Peter's saying that the Spirit who seals us gifts us in various ways. But we've all received the Spirit by faith in Jesus, and we've all been gifted by the Spirit to serve the body in all kinds of ways. Every believer has been empowered by the Spirit of God for service in the kingdom. And here's what this means. It means that there's no such thing as a bench warmer in the kingdom of God. When Christian communities are healthy, here's a good metric for us, City Life. When Christian communities are healthy, every believer is serving. Every member is active. Every person is being used by God in kingdom service. Maybe you ask, what what does that look like? And here's the second part of the text. Generally speaking, what that looks like is everyday faithfulness. Everyday faithfulness to God. Do Do you remember what David was doing before he was finally invited to the ceremony? He was tending sheep. Now here's what's real interesting. After David is anointed... And it tells us that the Holy Spirit came powerfully upon him from that day forward. Guess where David goes back to? Back to tending sheep. David does not immediately ascend the throne. He goes back to doing a menial task, completely unseen, except by God. He goes back to obscurity. And friends, most of the Christian life is lived here. The world's definition of greatness, says Zach Eswine, is to do large things famously as fast as possible. But this isn't God's paradigm. God calls us to be faithful in the everyday stuff of life. Most of life is lived in small, mostly overlooked moments. It's spent doing ordinary tasks among ordinary people. And you're called to faithfulness here. S1 asked this. It's a probing question. Do you have the stamina to do an unseen thing for God? In our culture, we're told it doesn't count unless it brings likes and clicks and follows and approval. 
Do you have the stamina to do an unseen thing for God? Can you live for Jesus when no one is watching? Can you do it without recognition or notoriety or title or platform? I mean, isn't this what Jesus taught us, right? That, that, that greatness is doing the task of a servant, that it's washing feet? I was reminded of, of Dr. King who said this, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics in physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Friends, here's what ordinary faithfulness looks like. It looks like mentoring a child through Youth Horizons or serving in City Life Kids. Carissa, you can say amen. It looks like welcoming an outsider to your table or giving your afternoon away to serve a member of your city group or, or volunteering with Young Life, or, or, or serving in the neighborhood fellowship. It, it looks like steadfastness at work and faithful presence with your kids. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts small. He said it's like a little leaven in some dough. You don't even see it working at first. It's unnoticeable at first, but, but given enough time, it leavens the whole lump. Listen to me. Ordinary faithfulness plus time equals massive kingdom impact. Ordinary faithfulness plus time equals massive kingdom impact. Some of us are too impatient in wanting to see noticeable kingdom impact. And so we hit eject before giving God the time to really make a difference. Be faithful. Be patient. Mothers who spend your days changing diapers and caring for little ones. Those of you working average jobs with a, with a sense of dissatisfaction. What this passage is telling us is that you are seen by God. You are being used by God so don't despise the pasture. God is using you in that sheep field. If you'll lean into his spirit and live one day at a time right where you are to serve others and point them to Christ, he will use you in unexpected ways for his kingdom. Here's a sentence that I want to be true of our church. I want our church to be a church full of Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. When people say, who is city life? They go, man, they're just a bunch of ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Because over time, I believe that would make a massive impact among your neighbors, among your coworkers, among your relatives, among your friends. This city would be changed. Church, God doesn't need us to be great. He's great. He doesn't need us to be great. He just wants us to be faithful right where you are to be intentional in the place that God has placed you. So here are some questions just to consider. What are the ordinary environments you find yourself in? 
just the everyday environments you find yourself in. And what relationships do you have within those? How might God use you in those people's lives? What if you lived each day with gospel intentionality in those everyday environments? David was faithful right where he was. He was patient. David didn't race for the throne. He trusted in God because the pastor was preparing him for the palace. Listen, God is able to move you into a different arena whenever he wants to. Right? That's what happens at the end of the chapter here. Saul's tormented by this evil spirit. He needs someone to come soothe his soul. And he's heard that there's a young boy in Bethlehem that can play the lyre. And so he says, hey, get that young man to the palace. That man is David. The Lord will take you where he wants you and he'll use you how he wishes. But it starts with you being faithful right where you are. It starts using your gifts to serve others in the places you find yourself at this moment. It starts with everyday faithfulness. And so church, I'll say it again. I, I really believe, I genuinely believe this. I believe the Lord would turn this city upside down through ordinary disciples doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. The good news of this story is that God uses ordinary people of faith who live with everyday faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, we are inundated with the message that greatness is defined by fame and fortune and notoriety and clout. And your word is telling us a different story. It's telling us a better story. That God, you don't need us to be clout chasers. You don't need us to build a platform. You'll use the most unlikely of people who have faith in you. You'll fill them with your spirit and empower them for service in ways they would have never imagined. And you're inviting us to simply walk with you one moment at a time, one day at a time, right where we are. So God, help us. Help us. And we need your spirit to help us to redefine and to, to see the world differently. So that we wake up each day with a profound sense that this day matters for the kingdom, even if no one sees me as I walk with you, as I love and serve others right where I am. God, help us to receive this message. In Jesus' name, amen.